You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents. At Monster Talk, we're always looking into mysteries, but there's one mystery which only you can provide the answer for. Who are you? Airwave Media is doing a network-wide audience survey, and we would love to learn more about you, our listeners, the people who make this show possible with your support and attention. Just go to surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave, all one word. So that's surveymonkey.com forward slash r, like the letter r, forward slash airwave. But don't worry, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Select Monster Talk from the drop-down list of shows and then fill out the simple questions to tell us more about who you are. We hope to hear from you. That's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airway. Thanks. The seven dreaded gateways are concealed in seven cursed places. Woe be unto him who ventures near without knowledge. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. The idea of hell is complicated. Some religions see it as a spiritual plane of divine punishment. Others see it as just the place you go when you die, regardless of your faith. In classical Greece, myths told of crossing the river Styx by paying the ferryman Charon with a coin. The dead were expected to have such a coin placed in their mouth as part of proper burial practice. 
Myth and folklore about holes that lead to hell are tied up with real-life locales with peculiar geology, geography, or historical significance. And then again, there are alleged gates to hell seemingly in the middle of nowhere. In medieval Europe, these doorways to hell were often symbolically drawn as literally the gaping maw of some terrible creature's mouth. Literally, a hell mouth was a mouth that opened a path to hell. But in the 1990s, a TV show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer made it part of American folklore that Hellmouth's just another name for a gate to hell. And then there's these very numerically specific legends about how many of these gates of hell are supposed to exist. It's complicated, and it spans the globe. All around the world are stories of caverns and portals, and today we're going to hear about some of the ways these have been represented across the centuries. We're excited to have back on Al Ridenauer who's an author and a podcaster, and today is going to take us to hell. Tonight, we're talking once again to Al Reidenauer, host of the wonderful and informative weird podcast, Bone and Sickle, and author of the incredible collection of Krampus folklore that is his book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Tonight, we're going to dance around the very maw to the netherworld as we discuss hell mouths and gates to hell. So welcome back to Monster Talk, Al Ridenauer. Welcome. Hello. This is where I say hello. <laughs> well, Al, the reason I invited you on, besides the fact that we just love you, is I, I you recently covered hell mouths on Bone and Sickle. That's your podcast, uh, in case you, you didn't hear that in the intro. Uh, and I certainly recommend folks check out your show uh, because you do a wonderful presentation on this topic, which we won't be able to uh, sort of emulate. And I wouldn't want to because you've got your style, we've got ours. But for today, I do want to pass some of that learning on to our audience. Could you tell our audience what is a hell mouth? Oddly enough, the uh, show you're talking about was a Christmas show because uh... – the devil and uh, representations of the devil theatrically were, was a uh, Christmas uh, phenomenon, particularly uh, a couple other times a year. But especially on Christmas, you'd see the devil on medieval stages. And uh, the uh, Hellmouth would be his entrance and exit, uh, the bit of stage, a bit of scenery that he would go in and out of. And his he and his demons, I should say, uh, either sinners would be dragged into it or the devil and his, or his demons might come out of it. Um, and this is uh, so. This would be in um, mystery plays, uh, which would be running from the uh, like the ninth century up into the sixteenth. Uh, and so, these Hellmouths was a very uh, sort of elaborate bit of uh, scenery that was built onto a pageant wagon. Um, the way these plays were presented, the, the plays actually would last all day sometimes. And the uh, rather than uh, running as a, the wagons might in a procession, a parade. Uh, the audience would go from uh, wagon to wagon. And uh, so, uh, and when, uh, when hell was part of the play, uh, when the demons or devils would enter or exit, you would have this maw, this mouth built up on the stage. And they're, they were based on uh, ideas that uh, people knew already from uh, illuminations, from uh, manuscript illuminations. That was sort of, or carvings. That was how the, Entrance to Hell was represented as a sort of an, uh, a, a monster's mouth. I just was looking through notes today, and I saw some that typically what you see is uh, you see this monster's mouth, and then above that, it's, it's uh, part of the mouth, uh, sort of like the gateway to a castle. And then the uh, angels rep- representing heaven would be in the towers above. People would come and go, and uh, these uh, hell mouths were actually, because 
were actually really elaborate. Um, you know, these so these plays were presented in Latin. You know, the peasants didn't know Latin. So you had to make sure the show was fun. And that would mean they would spend a lot of money producing all the uh, kind of uh, special effects for these. There was a, a person called the Master of Secrets, who was the uh, special effects wizard of the day. And uh, they were in charge of pyrotechnics. They are in charge of representing Noah's flood or representing... Uh, the uh, Satan in the Garden of Eden and creating the Hellmouse. Um, and so we have lots of documents of, uh, we don't have any drawings of these. Well, there's actually one from the 16th century, but there are, aren't, aren't a lot of rep- visual representations, but you can tell from looking back through the town's uh, uh, accounts, basically what they spent money on. And there's a lot of money spent on pyrotechnics. There was usually, there was some sort of belching fire that would come out of, come out of the hell mouth and once it uh once the devils made their uh, entrance or exit and also lots of uh, noise making um i have a quote from the 15th century to talk about uh noises made by machines the cannons are shot off and the flames of fire are thrown to the nostrils eyes and ears so it sounds like a good show uh, yeah. but also beyond that it would be uh there would be uh sometimes the uh, mouth would be made to look more like a, an actual beast's mouth. So there would be like a moving jaw, perhaps. Uh, I have an account from the 15th century. They talk about the mouth opening and closing. And when the devil says, when the devils wanted to go in and out, this great head had two steel eyes, which glittered wonderfully. And I imagine them kind of rolling back and forth. So they were mechanized. Some of these could be actually really large, especially later after the uh, after the uh, days of the mystery play, so there would be uh, still be uh, in carnival or other processions for Corpus Christi, there would be representations of hell or in plays. And I, I have another uh, 16th century account where they talk about uh, a uh, it's for, a hell created 14 feet long uh, of rock crown with a tower ever burning and belching flames, wherein Lucifer's head and body alone appeared, vomiting flames of fire unceasing and holding in his hand certain kinds of serpents or vipers which writhed and belched fire so you know pretty elaborate it sounds like it would be the highlight of the, sh- of the show for a lot of people very christmasy well i talked about it because uh it's part of my uh, sort of setting the stage for how the krampus appears and what he looked like and how people were the you know the general populace was fascinated by these devils they were actually really kind of often comic characters and they also, also the costumes that they devised for these uh, devils also often incorporated pyrotechnics. So there were, uh, uh, there's a, a 16th century French uh, manual that talks about how to create different effects, and they talk about uh, a mask uh, with a beak that has live coals in it, and the straws uh, that blow. Uh, you're supposed to blow. I think it says it blows powdered sulfur and alcohol out, which makes uh, blasts of fire. It's funny because when I – I don't know if I told you this or not, but when I was listening to your episode about that and you got to the part about blowing out the the fire with the sulfur and alcohol, I literally pulled over my truck and wrote an email (laughs) because uh, Mike Dash has been doing extensive research on Spring Spring Hill Jack. Yeah. And oh, yeah. yeah. And one of the things he was – we were discussing, he was still trying to kind of get to the bottom of was – 
flame, you know, typical people use things like kerosene flammables for uh, fire, you know, fire swallowing, fire breathing, that kind of stuff. And those are orangish yellow flames. Yeah. And he was trying to find out what he could, you know, what what might someone use to blow blue flame because that's what uh, the Spring Hill Jack oh. was supposed to do. And when you read that description, oh. I was like, holy crap. Uh, so I wrote oh, Mike has, and told him uh, all about has, it. Yeah, and it has a low burning, uh, low burning temperature, I think, too. Yeah, um, and uh, I guess these uh, masks were also insulated with mud. Actually, is what it says. But I guess, and then I don't think the Spring, Spring Hill Jack would have had the sulfur. I don't think the. I guess if it's powdered, I don't know how it's combined with the liquid, but the powdered sulfur would have the smell. Pro- of probably not. And in fact, it turns out alcohol burns blue anyway. And that, yeah. so it's, it's a great match. I just I just didn't know that. Neither did Mike. So It's kind of a dim <laughs> so, flame. I don't know if that would have really worked well. Maybe it was all theoretical, what they wrote in this book. But uh, anyway, I like the idea that they were at least thinking about it. <laughs> so, Al, I've heard of uh, the Chester mystery plays before so you've mentioned mystery plays um and these were performances of biblical stories uh so i'd never heard of hell mouths being attached to them though but uh i wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, mystery plays the mystery plays were uh any they were any story from the bible um later there were uh, another set of plays that appeared they were called miracle plays that were uh associated with saints' lives. And then later there were um, uh, everyman plays that were sort of, uh, they were, and these were more, these weren't from the Bible. They were sort of uh, modern dilemmas of the day that what, you know, sort of what people might face. And it's from the, it's from the everyman plays that get the, the uh, sort of trope of the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. And that, that actually happens to be like a source for the, the Krampus, the Nicholas plays that became the Krampus. Well, I'm, we're not talking about that this week, but yeah. So those are a little later. Um, so there's, you know, evolution of these plays. And then a lot of this stuff survived in cr- sort of carnival traditions and uh, popular plays. But all of this is sort of a, a progression from the, within the church there early on, there's some, some sort of kind of uh, liturgical plays that happened in the church that kind of mimed like at Easter, there would be a sort of miming of the nailing the the Christ on the cross. And then uh, these things became more elaborate. Uh, and then uh, the guilds took them over and they were produced outside the church on say, uh, originally maybe on the steps of the church. And then later, later on in, you know, in the court, the town square, or even uh, sort of as on a smaller scale going ho- house to house. That's, and again, where the Krampus comes in, but we're not talking about that either again. <laughs> These are different from Mr. T plays, and I pity the fool that gets confused. <laughs> <laughs> so, Al, what is uh, the difference between a hellmouth and a gate to hell? The hellmouth, you have in, in that the anim- idea of an animal actually swallowing the sinners. By the 19th century, uh, the Leviathan, which I know you guys have talked about, this sort of sort of Mesopotamian early Hebrew monster that was a kind of creature of the primordial sea had become a, a demon. So it was associated with hell. And uh, this also was associated with the story of Jonah and the whale. Um, Christ talks about him, him in some verse in the New Testament. He talks, he his what he's going to do when he goes into hell, uh, goes into the, it goes into to Hades or the grave for three days He's doing this under the sign of Jonah. So you have this idea that this monster swallows the uh, the sinner. And uh, in Jesus' case, he escapes, but that's not always the case. And, and some of this, um, 
this sort of thing comes from we already had this in pre-christian in the uh in uh, the classical civilization had this idea of monsters swallowing uh mortals as a way to enter uh hell hades or uh tartarus or uh the whatever the classical afterlife was uh there's a uh, just looking through notes on the show, I saw from uh, an illustration from um, of uh, Aeneas uh, going into the underworld, and he's rep- it's represented by a, a monster swallowing him, which is identified as Orcus, which is uh, Orcus was sort of an all-purpose monster from uh, the Romans that survived into the Middle Ages. Um, sort of, it, it was kind of un- always unclear what it was in different stories. It was some sort of giant or a boar. Uh, and in the Middle Ages, it kind of evolved. That term evolved into our the word ogre, which is also kind of a nebulous kind of monster. We, you know, and also the wild man of the woods. In northern Italy, there's even something called Parco dei Monstri, uh, which is the Garden of the Mo- uh, the Park of the Monsters, which was a sort of folly that was built by a 16th century nobleman, and he has an orcus. Uh, it's it's that's uh, that's has an open mouth that you would walk into. So this the idea of this monster swallowing people was part of the mouth idea, the hell mouth. It's not just a it's not just an, a portal or a gate or a wormhole. It's actually a beast swallowing you. Wow. <laughs> so when you when you want to curse someone away, you could say go to whale uh, instead of go to hell. It's, like, it's somehow still the same thing. That's neat. <laughs> I, I noticed. I, I, one of the things that kind of uh, serendipitously or synchronicity uh, made me, you know, uh, really pay attention to this episode was I had just done. I have an uh, under the Monster House banner. I have a <laughs> often neglected but beloved podcast called the Horror Podcast, which uh, I'm doing a series on um, Lut- uh, Italian cinema, Italian horror. And uh, I was looking at Lucio Fulci, who did a lot of movies, but he did specifically a series called The Gates of Hell Trilogy. And they keep talking about the seven gates to hell, um, which I've seen pop up in a bunch of different folklore. Um, There's like an American version tied to Pennsylvania. There's gates of hell all over the world. But this idea that there's seven of them is of interest. Have you? Did you run into any of that seven gates of hell when you're doing your research? You know, you you and I had talked about this, and I really wasn't sure. All I had was uh, very abstract, distant uh, references. Um, but I did find some something that might uh, have influenced the Fulci's film. Um, by the way, I, I really I really enjoyed that episode because I had never heard the term. Uh, splat stick for splatter slapstick. Yeah, isn't that neat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wow. think I'm, those sort of describes a, a genre that I enjoy. Though I'm not, I'm also not a fan of, of Fulci movies because I haven't seen them as much as you. But uh, I think that process of kind of adaptation to Fulci was described in your show nicely. Um, so I don't even know. As far as I, what I understood was that the Seven Gates was only introduced later in the, the Beyond, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's very peculiar. Just to clarify, uh, this is Blake with a quick insert here. There's an idea of multiple gates to hell that are mentioned in City of the Living Dead, but not the number seven. In the second film in this series called The Beyond, which has the same scriptwriter and is set in New Orleans, there's supposed to be seven gates and one's under the cursed hotel where the protagonist is trying to renovate and set up shop. And in the third film of the trilogy, there's no mention of gates of hell at all. And this can all be laid at the feet of screenwriter Dardano Sacchetti, 
who famously pushed Fulci away from trying to have his films make sense and towards an aesthetic of sensory nightmare where rationality and reason are the first victims before the people start dying at all. Then I have a then I have a theory that might work. Okay, so uh, first of all, I was kind of looking through. Uh, I just went on IMBD and put in uh, Hellgate or Hellmouths or Hell and Portals. I guess is the most generic. And I noticed there were a lot of films coming up in the late seventies and early eighties. Seventy uh, starting with seventy seven, The Sentinel, um, which is I rec- is fun. It's uh, got Christopher Walken in it and, and Burgess Meredith. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, then we're just Meredith. Yeah, so there's that. Then Amityville Horror kind of has that. And then you got, and then '81 the, comes to Beyond. They get Poltergeist, Ghostbusters, The Gate, Evil Dead kind of has that too. Hellraiser by '87. So you have all these films coming up. But um, so I think it was kind of something in the air. But beyond that, I, I think that there might be um, a tie to uh, voodoo folklore, uh, voodoo uh, teachings or beliefs because. Uh, there's uh, something in voodoo called uh, the gates of Guinea, Guinea or Guinan. Sometimes um, uh, Guinan uh, or Guinea is a generic term that's used to uh, refer to uh, all of West Africa where the slaves came from. So uh, it kind of came to mean the realm of the ancestors, the the realm of the dead, um, and. Uh, there were seven gates. These were there were seven, and uh, you had to do them in the correct order, and you had to leave an offering to the loa that as you uh, made your way through the different uh, gates. And I, I wonder if the uh, I, I got a feeling that the uh, screenwriter for that film, you know, did look into some kind of voodoo folklore. Maybe uh, I mean it was also you know this seven gates thing, as you pointed out, is already like kind of circulating um as as kind of urban let in urban legend status i don't know how old this gates of getting stuff a lot of this voodoo stuff comes in the 20s and 30s um but there are so it goes it sort of seems to have evolved from a kind of ritual a sequence of ritual events uh, to uh and now i know there's some uh, kind of urban folklore about new orleans where there are seven gates to be found throughout the city you know madame laveau's tomb of course is one of them but there's seven gates that you pass through in order to get to the other side so I, that's my guess that it, that's the screenwriter had looked into that sort of folklore what do you i don't know what do you think about that that sounds very plausible to me but yeah and i guess it it'd be really cool if i could speak italian because the screenwriter for those movies is still alive but i've never found in the interview where he talks about that and i that's really disappointing i'd love to know <laughs> may not disclose his secrets too but exactly <laughs> maybe that was the concept and it didn't get trans didn't make it its way really clearly into the script and Fulci had no idea that about what also that possible from, so. i mean and yeah. when you look at the third movie is the house by the cemetery it's got nothing to do with no. gates of hell <laughs> at all so yeah. i don't know i don't <laughs> al i want to ask you about uh gates to hell in a more kind of pop culture sense because when blake first mentioned this topic to me that's what i thought of i was thinking more about uh, gates to hell as a kind of legend tripping Right. Uh, thing and it seems to be really popular nowadays that people will go to cemeteries and other spooky places and they'll discover a portal to hell and Blake some time ago did an investigation into one of these places and uh, there'll be claims about satanic rituals taking place and all different kinds of things but uh, well, what do you know about that kind of pop culture interpretation of gates to hell right. today? I- you know, I almost wonder if some of that was influenced because this um, legend tripping sort of started 
started once kids got their cars after World War II and started all that kind of youth culture stuff that began. So it's all relatively <laughs> recent. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I don't know that the the one I know the best. I know there's probably dozens of them now. Uh, I know the the one I know the best is the one in Pennsylvania, um, in uh, York County. Uh, there's a road, Toad Road, which uh, oh yeah, yeah. So there's a <laughs> there's the sort of generic uh, uh, legend, tripping legend that there was a mental hospital out there that burned down uh, and uh, all the patients escaped. And they one version of the story is they what they put up the they put up gates to keep the crazy dangerous mental patients in and uh another version and i don't think actually the gates of hell story i think doesn't have that much to do with it um the other is just you have to pass through these gates um i think you can only see the first one during the day and the other six appear at night and then you can get to the other side um the uh i guess toad road the road that it, that used to go down that they used to, to legend trip down is now like overgrown and closed off but it the funny thing is it um seems to have been a road to um 19th century uh iron forge and uh i think the forge eventually uh burned down which like the mental hospital i guess there's some symmetry and all <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a good source on that is uh timothy renner who does the strange familiars podcast he wrote a book i think on toad road but that's just one of them i know there's a lot like i don't know what okay. the skull cemetery well, story is blake can tell us about that but it seems like uh it's a very popular thing in america maybe not so much in australia uh, but certainly every town, city I've yeah. gone to in the States has had some kind of uh, gate to hell. Right. Like there's some, there's like 12 crying baby bridges to yeah. all these, all this uh, legend tripping stuff kind of just, and now it travels via the internet. It used to be, you know, oral histories or oral transmission. Right. Just, yeah. Now it's everywhere. Well, it's kind of the reason right. we were just, I was looking at Goatman again. Why haven't we covered Goatman? Because we need to cover him as a broad category. Not as, There's so many goat men across America, <laughs> you know, and I understand yes, go, goat herding is man. a lonely business. So, 
Things happen. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't pan out. Sometimes it terribly pans out. So <laughs> Maybe, Blake, you can tell us a little about it if we have time. I can tell you quickly about uh, I, I, in 2010. Oh, by the way, oh, oh my God, time flies. Um, I, I went to uh, visit... It was at the Midwest Skeptics. Well, actually, I was on a business trip. It doesn't really matter. I went to visit the Midwest Skeptics. I don't know if they're still a group or not, but uh, I went out to dinner with them. And, you know, I, every time I go on a business trip, I always try to find something to investigate. And I ask, you know, well, what are the local legends? What do people What do people do out here? You know, what, what, where are the ghosts? Where's the monsters? And nobody really had a great answer, but um, someone suggested that there is a gate to hell in Stull. And I had never heard of it before. It's just stull. Well, <laughs> it is a really cute little town. I bless their hearts. It turns out that I went out there, and when I got there, there was someone chasing teenagers away from the cemetery. And I I parked, and when they were leaving, I flagged them down because I assumed they were authorities of some sort. They were. Uh, I don't want to you know, call them out or whatever. But I stopped and talked for about half an hour about the problems they were. And it turns out um, they've uh, apparently, in the according to them, in the 1950s, some professor at the University of Kansas made up this folklore uh, <laughs> as a deliberate urban legend. By 1972, uh, it had become a popular thing for teenagers to do on Halloween night was to go see the gate to hell open and Satan to come out. And so, of course, in the 70s, uh, hippie movement, all that sort of thing, um, it be, like it got really raucous, and it people started uh, vandalizing the cemetery. It, it, by the time I had done this uh, chat with him, they had had 13 broken headstones, and 11 had been completely stolen. And these are – it's a small community. When people steal headstones or break headstones – it's impacting families that mm. still live there, you know. So, right. yeah. Um, yeah. It, unfortunately, it's That's it's got cool. a real dark side to it. But, uh, the, you know, there is no mm. gateway there. And then, of course, it, then it got popularized on the TV show Supernatural. And so they've just been struggling with trying to keep people from vandalizing their cemetery. So, um, right. yeah. It, sadly, no gate to hell, but lots of uh, terrible hellish behavior from the normals. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, Al, we we can, you know, obviously Gates to Hell uh, and all that lore, maybe something we can explore further later. I know Jerry Drake's done a lot of research on uh, Toad Road and has been anxious to talk about it. We could probably hook up something. But I want to talk about these classical, mythological, uh, medieval, religious, the, the sort of the, the, the big Gates to Hell, the, the ones that like fill up medieval documents with beautiful paintings. Tell, tell us about, you know, some of these early, like, where do we first get these stories from? When did the Gates of Hell start entering Western literature? One of the earliest ones that's really fully fleshed out, it would be uh, Virgil's The Aeneid, uh, where he visits Hell to uh, get information about, he needs to seek the advice of his uh, dead father. And at the uh, entrance of Hell is one of the Sibyls who kind of gives him directions of how to proceed into the underworld. The Sibyls were, uh, there were uh, nine or ten, depending if you're Greek or Roman, how many Sibyls were. There were the oracles that were uh, mainly in Greece and Italy, but also scattered through like uh, Turkey and, and modern Iran and Libya. They were all over. Um, but the most important one was the Cumaean Sibyl. Cumaea was a, a Greek uh, colony near Naples, more or less. Um, in uh, Virgil's uh, story, he 
goes to her and he get, he he's sort of set on the road set on the underworld road by her but um they've always you know since the middle ages people were always wondering where that what where that that cave she lived you know you know, in her underground lair was supposed to have been. And um, in 1932, uh, an Italian uh, archaeologist, uh, Maiori, who uh, he's overseen excavations at Pompeii and Herculaneum, um, uh, he uh, uh, decided that he had found the location uh, because uh, he found this uh, long tunnel uh, that had a long, a large uh, chamber at the end. And what really cl- uh, clinched the deal for him was it was near Lake Avernus, which was uh, mentioned in the, uh, in Virgil's story. Uh, Virgil calls it the, uh, the, uh, something like the foul smelling Lake of Avernus. Uh, and Avernus is uh, from a Greek word that means birdless. And the reason there was, the lake was birdless is it, it was fed by, from underground, there were underground fissures that let off carbon dioxide, which Ooh, would poison yeah. the birds if they sw- <laughs> uh, uh, flew low enough. So uh, that's kind of been locked in since the 30s as a location. Uh, and I'm actually excited. I'm going to be going to uh, Naples and uh, for some uh, st- uh, stuff in the spring. And I'm going to go definitely have to check that out and see if I agree. It looks like a gate to hell. <laughs> so that's that's one of the ones that uh, one of the uh, several that actually correspond with real world locations there's also in uh in turkey there's uh the uh the temple of pluto in hierapolis uh which uh, also has it's another case where there is uh, supposed to have been toxic gases uh, leaking up through fissures in the earth and uh this is also an area where the priests of sibeli were supposed to um you know uh run run things for a while their mystery cult and they would uh uh, the, the cave was known. The temple had a uh, was attached to a, a cavern, uh, and uh, people would um, knew sacrifices would be offered there, and they sacrifice the animals by lowering them down into this pit that where they were exposed to these fumes. And uh, the priests of Sibeli uh, would uh, go <laughs> enter the enter the cave, but they would keep their heads low enough so that they, they would be below where the uh, carbon dioxide would accumulate. Uh, carbon monoxide sorry um would accumulate so they would actually survive and then they would so they'd lie on the ground then they'd rise up and then they would be miraculously endowed with some sort of supernatural power so that was uh gave them gave them sort of that uh, sort of status that they might not have had otherwise and uh there's even uh uh then there's also even uh in uh, also in turkey i think it's turkey no it's in greece the uh there's another uh temple of the dead in ephra people would seek out an oracle there um in the Odyssey, Odysseus goes there to talk to Tiresias, and another case where they would offer animal sacrifices, uh, and that there's ruins of that also that people can go to. So you know, there's a there's a number of um, there's a number of entrances to the uh, underworld of uh, antiquity that you could look for. Yeah, it seems like they're tied to these sort of geological. It's like the 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 classic Euhemerus uh, thing was there must be a kernel of truth to this myth. And sometimes when they're tied to these geological places, it does seem like a really good fit that that uh, these gas leaks or or whatever emissions would would kind of uh, need a narrative to explain them, and these, right. these fit the bill, right? And I suppose that you know there was something special going on there that didn't happen. You know, if you, we 
you know, it's like sort of like uh, Children of the Damned or something. You walk into the zone and everybody freezes or falls down to sleep or dies. It's like, well, how do we explain this? Yeah, I think that I think it's sort of natural. Those become supernatural or sort of liminal zones. Yeah, yeah. Those uh, those lakes that occasionally burp out carbon dioxide. And uh, I think there's one in Africa that killed a village because it was downhill from the from the lake and uh and then they've put vents in it now to kind of keep it uh hopefully cut down on those kind of massive all at once uh, emissions but it's very frightening very frightening happens in uh, yellowstone too heard stories about that um, animals dying in particular but uh, yeah. al uh i'm curious about the intersection between fairy lore and hellmouth lore can you tell us a little bit about that well i guess i mean that has to do with the, I mean, we have so much folklore about dwarves and uh, uh, trolls living, dwarves especially, I suppose, uh, living, or fairies living in caves and in the, in, you know, in the depths of a mountain. One of them is another uh, Sybil, as I said, there were 10 or nine or 10 of them. Uh, this is the uh, Apennine Sybil. It's up further north of Naples in uh, Umbria. The, in the uh, Apennine Mountains, there's a um, the mountain range called the Sibyllini Mountains, and Mount Sibylla would be where uh, people believed that this uh, fairy, who uh, who had become sort of a gatekeeper to the underworld, existed. Uh, there's a sort of uh, I think there's a, it's a 15th century story about uh, a visit to this fairy, uh, which uh, also the another thing that gave sort of lent credence to the story was it was near the town of Norcia which in the Middle Ages was known as a kind of mecca for sorcery. Uh, and again, there's, it's next to a lake. Um, uh, Lago di Pilato is uh, called it's pa- the Lake of Pilate, Pontius Pilate from the Bible story, uh, cru- you know, responsible for crucifying Christ, supposedly. So he was a villain of the Middle Ages. And the lake was colored uh, blood red. Again, I, some other kind of geological phenomenon, I'm not sure how, what it was, how it was explained, but there's something significant about the lake. Uh, and so this uh, knight, uh, Guerin, in the in this uh, 15th century narrative, uh, visits uh, the Sibyl Alcina in the in her uh, underground palaces and pleasure gardens and so forth. And he can't leave. And so that's kind of, you know, that's a narrative you have in a lot of fairy lore where once the fairies capture you, you have to stay and, you know, you stay forever. You have no access, no access to the real world. Oh, golly. I and thought so you, you were going to say there was a gate to hell there because I thought if if the gates to hell are, are, are tied to Leviathan and this is a tale of Pontius Pilate, surely that would create a pilot whale. <laughs> God, you must work so hard on this. Set up. <laughs> the, uh, the thing about that story that's interesting is it was kind of the – it was the basis for uh, the Tannhäuser uh, – story which is more or less the same the one that uh, Wagner adopted to adapt into his opera and so that became well known and you, you know in uh, in Blade Runner when uh, Roy Batty I sure do top, uh, yeah that's <laughs> so that's the same gate we're talking about in that story but it's just the German version of the story it's the uh, gate to the other side oh, cool. That that story's lost to us like tears in the rain. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the two thousand they did some. Um, studies with ground penetrating radar and they found that uh, where that uh, at Mount Sibylla, the caverns actually go much, much deeper into the mountain than was suspected before the cave entrance itself was collapsed at some point, I think maybe intentionally, but so you never know. That might be, that might be an avenue to pursue. If you want to go to fairy kingdom. 
probably try to start to wrap things up with the, the interview, but I wanted to ask you what's coming up for your show and are there any other projects that you want folks to know about? Uh, well, um, my show is, I guess we're in the fifth year now, uh, episode, over episode 104 I'm working on. Yay. So uh, it struggles on, or it's not a struggle to the listeners, but it's certainly a struggle to me sometimes. Uh, and I'm also working on a, a <laughs> We understand. Book, uh, kind of the, yeah, I'm sure you do. Kind of related to the the Krampus book, it's uh, looking at uh, the, as the you know the Krampus was a winter holiday, so this one looks at unknown folk celebrations uh, uh, that uh, occur between uh, the carnival season and May Day, and I'm finding lots of really really good stuff. So that it's going to still be a while, more than a year before that comes out. But I'm spending a lot of time researching that. Oh, fun. Now. Oh, good luck with that. You've been here before. And we talked about your favorite monster. Um, so I thought I would say, if you want to, if, if that's changed, you could talk about a new favorite monster. Or maybe you could introduce us to something a little obscure that you like or, or just something the listeners may not have heard of before. Well, one of the things that a monster that did come to mind because it just sort of fell in with the notes, uh, the research I was doing was the uh, chimera, um, the, you know, monster from Greek mythology. Because um, I actually visited uh, the Camara's lair, at least according to some stories. Um, when I was in Turkey, um, there's a site on the southern coast. It's on the uh, the slopes of another Mount Olympus. There was 20-something 20, 20 of them apparently across across the globe. But this, they called this Olympus, spelled a little differently. Um, and um, there, uh, the, there is uh, gas that, again, here issues up from the uh within the earth and it tends to uh, burst into flames so this uh rocky area has all these flames uh burning perpetually i guess uh in one of the accounts they talk about the chimera being continually on fire day and night so uh these flames are that's how they how they're looked upon at least in the folklore of the region and uh i remember burning sticks to say that they were sticks that were used to battle the chimera and giving them out as souvenirs at the time. So that that was one that came to mind. Um, but I do have a question, uh, sort of a request uh, for your listeners. If there's any listeners who lived in Tennessee, perhaps, or anywhere near Tennessee, when I was a kid, um, I remember going to, and this would have been a long time ago, probably in the early 70s or late, even late, early 70s, uh, <laughs> we were driving through the Smoky Mountains, which is, you know, very built up for sort of... Uh, they call it the White Trash Riviera <laughs> around uh, that area. So it's very built up for tourism. And uh, there was a, apparently there was an attraction. I didn't know what the name was. It was. I started doing some research. It was called Tour Through Hell, opened in 67. And it was... Uh, Whoa. I remember was, it, it looked like a, a sort of like a Flintstones village. It looked like sort of a big fiberglass volcano. And, and it was uh, mm. the, sort of a, looked like, it was kind of like a carnival attraction you'd walk through. And you were led by a preacher who would talk about different uh, sinners and what they did historically to be suffering there. And there were red lights and it was spooky. And my parents were kind of dubious about the whole thing. But I remember going there and enjoying it. Um, uh, it burned down in the early <laughs> 70s. Again, I guess sort of appropriate. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's, uh, so it's Gatlinburg. Uh, so if anybody's ever been to that and has any information, I would I would love to hear more about it, especially I'd love to see a photo. I was too young to be taking photos, but it does, you know, lives on my in my memory, fondly. 
Oh, I bet you'll get some answers from our audience. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> I yes, thought are, I might. Yeah. Are, are, were you just visiting Tennessee, or that is that where you're from? No, I we well, I lived in Kentucky for a while, so Kentucky. that's where we went. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah, no, I never heard of that. I I actually just went down a a, a research hole uh, this past summer because I ran into this bit of trivia. I'm really interested in the history of the internet and technology and that sort of thing. And, and I saw that like a really important developmental step in the internet took place at a conference in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Oh, and, and I couldn't believe it because yeah. I'm like, if you've been to Gatlinburg lately, you know, in, in my <laughs> lifetime, it does not seem like the sort of place where there would be high end tech conferences and no, it's yeah, in Hollywood the, and uh... yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I ran that to ground. I found the answer to my question, and oh. uh, yeah, so uh, but I can I can put a little insert here about that if you're, if anyone's interested. But it was really interesting because I thought that is an underplayed bit of uh, like mm-hmm. when, when you think about the history of Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge and all that stuff uh, pioneering moments of internet history does not come to mind <laughs> <laughs> but it's true so I'll, 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 I'll stick it in so anyway Al thank yeah. you so much for coming to talk to us in our audience today yeah. thank you really oh, thank interesting you. topic yeah and I, I again listeners I highly recommend you check out Al's show it is so well produced it's such a fun ride and uh, you'll learn stuff every time guaranteed Monster Talk You've been listening to Monster Talk the science show about monsters I'm Blake Smith and I'm Karen Stolzner You just heard an interview with podcaster and author Al Ridenour A link to Al's show and book are in the show notes and be sure to check them out Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as The Accidental Creative and and The Sit Down. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. You can enjoy extended commercial-free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash Monster Talk, all one word, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-T-A-L-K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, visit monstertalk.org forward slash support where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Your attention is rare and precious, and we thank you for sharing some of it with us this week.
This has been a Monster House presentation. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.